Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the podcast for the Left Pocket Project, where I bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. I'm your host, Wendy Muse. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Sangeeta Sudarsan on a few contemporary issues that have quite a long-standing history. San is a feminist with a degree in gender studies. She likes to think about the discourse on fighting against white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy in simple and accessible terms. She is also interested in how neoliberalism functions in culture and how it affects our material realities. Finally, she loves bell hooks, Gloria Anzaldúa, and love. San and I talk about some of the limits of popular left politics and related media and social spaces, what is left unsaid when we talk about resistance, and potential ways to deepen our approaches to egalitarianism. We actually started talking quite a bit about uh, pop culture and some of the things that we felt like when we were looking online and seeing um, with regard to certain women that we just weren't fully being represented by them. But at the same time, another thing that sort of brought us together was the simple fact that we looked around and we saw, okay, this Bernie Bro myth is really frustrating because we said, we're both women of color. We both have left-leaning ideas. Um, you're not even in the United States, but I've been th- I was at the time during a lot of, a big chunk of the election outside of the United States. So we're kind of talking about things that don't necessarily fit the mold of what a Bernie bro is or Bernie bro, quote unquote, specific ideas and interests. Um, and at the same time, as we're actively trying to refute this both during and after the election by saying, no, 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 there are many women who are left-leaning, who may have voted for Bernie, who support Bernie, or even criticize Bernie from the left. Uh, there are many women, there are many people of color. Don't erase us. At the same time, we looked at new left media. So all of these new blogs and podcasts and you know websites and video streams, YouTube channels, they kept popping up and they were almost entirely... Uh, comprised of white men. Uh, so what do you think about that? Because it's kind of difficult to to battle against the stereotype while at the same time the media that's supposed to be representing you is almost entirely that stereotype. Well, for starters, we want to address the idea that, you know, we are women of colour and we have very specific ideas. But, you know, we also want to work and talk about politics in a way that does not specifically relate to our identities, like, you know, solely as black and brown women, uh, or if we're queer, we want to simply talk about politics in a way that, you know, has legitimate value. We want to say, okay, um, we are left-leaning women, but we're also not, you know, especially when it comes to specific, there were quite a few racist ideas against, you know, black women criticizing Bernie Sanders, you know, there was this idea that, you know, you were just angry black women. That was rather offensive and obviously racist. And so we want to, <laughs> just you know, a tad. <laughs> you, we want to evolve past that. We want to have our ideas legitimized whilst not having our identities brought up all the time. And this was specifically seen with, with the whole Bernie bro thing that was happening. Uh, we saw a lot of, you know, left-leaning white folks, you know, like, use our identities like and quote us and use us all the time like this person is a woman of color she's you know she's queer how dare you you know you know uh, disregard her ideas and we really don't want that because while we want our identities to be you know recognized we're not solely our identities and that 
is a very specific problem in a in a very small leftist space, even though it gives us a lot of, you know, it gives us at least a platform, uh, you know, to voice our opinions freely, right. at least as freely as we can. I mean, that's still something that I see happening too, which is the crazy part. So like even now, long after the election is, has <laughs> come and gone, sort of, I mean, I feel like 2016 <laughs> never quite ends, but it's the endless year. Um, I think we rehashed 2016 about 20 times right. in 2017. <laughs> and I think 2017 was just lost. Right. Yes, it was. It was like the epilogue. It was the epilogue <laughs> to the long, long array of 2016. But what's funny is that I still see this happening. And even by people that I would normally consider allies and I think have generally good politics, um, as much as I think they do sincerely appreciate the voices and, and, you know, contributions by people of color, by women, by women of color, to be even more specific, they at the same time often do exactly what you just mentioned. So they'll kind of pull out the, the token, you know, black leftist or the token Asian leftist or whatever, and they'll say, okay, this person exists. So every time you talk about Democratic voters only being people of color and like, uh, you know, establishment Democratic voters, you're erasing this group or you're erasing that group. And I don't want to be pulled up only when you have a chip, you know, like when you, you need a chip, you need something to like lay on the table and say, here, this person exists. I do actually want to be pulled up, however, if you're talking about ideas and things that we um, consider politically, right? I mean, it's a completely different type of relationship to have with someone. It's, I think we can also talk about it in terms of uh, the Joe, uh, Joy Ann Reed uh, boycott, for example. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's really think about it this way. So she's a black woman and, you know, she's a uh, an elite uh, Democrat, well, at least an elite media, uh, you know, critic, well, not media, political commentator, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call her. And, well, we see this kind of boycott of her, which is fine. But at the same time, we want to also address the kind of disproportionate uh, sense of how we react to, you know, uh, neoliberal women, right? So we don't see this kind of incredible attack on white men, white women. And it's not that we want to, like, be on constant attack mode. It's just that there seems to be this really disproportionate sense of how we view particular demographics. So we don't want to boycott Joy uh, and we just because, you know, she uh, is a... Um, like a neoliberal, right? It's just yeah, yeah, not just, yeah, just because, you know, not just because she is a neoliberal as well, but we, we have certain ideas that need to be opposed. You know, there's this, that, that we have, we have conservatives uh, like uh, Anna Navarro, who isn't boycotted in that similar sense, even though she is pretty much a right winger who hates Trump, right? right. You don't see that kind of uh, attacks, or even with Megyn Kelly, whatever her name is, that's her name, right? Megyn Kelly. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, that's the kind of thing we see. You know, we see this kind of these specific ways in which women are attacked, especially women on the liberal left. Right now, sure, like, you know, liberals or, you know, centrists have, you know, questionable politics, but we also want to see what it means to be a person of colour, a woman of colour in these spaces, online, occupying these spaces, and being able to oppose the ideas on their ideas alone instead of, you know, boycotting them just because they hold a specific identity. 
Right. I mean, the joy, the joy cot, as it's called, which I think is a, it's like interesting, um, really, really well done portmanteau of sorts. Um, but I think it's interesting that there are a lot of people, even on the nominal left, right, um, who mm -hmm. maybe are white men who've had on guests, for example, for their podcasts or written about or even are in cahoots with like their friends with a lot of people who are um, well-known liberal pundits and the like. And they definitely don't receive the same degree of vitriol from a lot of the left-leaning Twitter followers um, or Twitter participants, you know, people on Twitter in general, right? It's kind of fascinating that a lot of the barbs and arrows are thrown her way. And while I think they're often justified, because I also have issues with a lot of the behavior that Joanne Reed exhibits on TV, online, etc., she's she's a very problematic figure, to say the least, um, and to put it nicely on the left, or at least on the liberal left. But I think it's important for us to think about ways that these types of actions are, I mean, we remember them, right? So yeah. as a person of color, as a woman who's black, I'm looking at this situation and I'm saying, yes, I disagree with Joy Ann Reed. I often also mention, you know, that I have problems with some of the things that she said, but I also have issues with the things that Joe Biden says. And I also have issues with the things that other, that even men on the left say, women on the left say, right? The far left. So I think it's important that we're not, um, we're not getting hyper-focused on certain people because, or at least people just, I don't know how to put it. I feel like some of the attention on the one hand, she becomes hyper visible precisely yeah. because she's a black woman. Right. And in that process, as a black woman who's on the left, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, her, and then other women I've seen her women of color who are journalists who were dogpiled for like a small criticism here or there. Um, even if they too identify as leftists, it makes you look at the situation and say, okay, so I am not allowed to dissent. I am a black yeah. woman. I'm not allowed to have a different opinion on anything. I can't, I can't, you know, point out some small flaw, um, even in these everyday discourses that we have. And, which actually makes me want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, when we think about the number of black intellectuals online, you can probably just name a few, like a just a handful, not even about the number of, I don't know, uh, white men, white male pundits that we tend to see or white male intellectuals that we tend to see because who tend to have a lot of visibility online. So, so as a black woman, how do you feel when it comes to, when you think about the number of black intellectuals who share your similar opinion? And, you know, you were just saying that you, you can't even you can't even point out a flaw. You can't even dissent because you see the reaction that other uh, women get, especially, you know, like in the context of jo uh, Joy, we think, okay, maybe because, you know, she's going to get so much flack for it. Maybe I might not as well. So how do you feel in this particular space? Like, do you think there are many, like it encourages the space of a lot of black intellectuals and uh, what do you think is happening to your own demographic? Hmm. I mean, I see a lot of, I see a lot of vocal black academics online, thankfully. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot of left-leaning um, black writers, thinkers, PhD candidates, professors, etc. Um, I look up to them, and I actually can credit them for a lot of my own political development, and especially over the past few years. I mean, I, I would... I would say that it's definitely like dragged me to the to the left even further. So this is a good thing. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I will say that I know for a fact that like a lot of people are 
they also have these these gripes and grievances with regard to the Twitter sphere, right? The way, the sort of environment that Twitter um, sets up, but even beyond it, right? So especially right now in this this political climate that we're living in, um, I think it's really hard for a lot of professors to dissent to begin with. But even if we <laughs> if we drag things back a little bit and we look at the Obama administration, right? You have people like Stephen Saleta who um, wrote what he did about Netanyahu in Israel and lost his job. Um, yes. And so it's a lesson to those of us who have political leanings on the left or who, I don't know, like disagree with colonialism or disagree with police brutality. It definitely has a chilling effect. It silences us in a lot of ways. So on the one hand, you know, the Joy Ann Reed stuff and sort of the dogpiling and all of that is frustrating on a personal level. And it definitely sometimes... Um, I don't know. I don't want to say I police what I say, but I definitely am always thinking like I'm thinking about, you know, what tweet I have, what kind of um, afterlife will it have? Right. Will people respect this as just my opinion or will they take something and like blow it up and make it something much worse than it actually is? Um, but then beyond even the space on Twitter, this, the kind of space that Twitter itself sponsors in, in large part, um, I think it's important to think about the ramifications beyond it. And in that case, they're even more, um, they have a more, much larger silencing effect because I think, a lot, I, and I see it every day, there are a lot of really great left-leaning academics that I know who are personal friends who just like left Twitter altogether or left social media altogether because they were afraid that they would potentially lose job offers or not be offered jobs in the first place when they were interviewing uh, because they were too political, right? And so on the, and yeah. I think I think we see a lot of white professors um not all, but some of them being able to get away, at least for a moment, uh, with being too political, right? With being very vocal about their political opinions. Um, and some of whom are even, you know, hosts of podcasts or on their own podcasts <laughs> where they say things that would, under normal, normal circumstances, would not be, they would never get a job again, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think they, they have license to sort of do these things and say these brash things in ways that we often um, sometimes just cannot for the sake of protecting our own our own jobs but, or potential jobs. Yeah, but that's what I find so interesting, right? Because, you know, that kind of policing, I mean, you say you're not policing, but there is a, this is, uh, this is where you essentially think about the ramifications of what you say, you know, that constant, there's, a, there's this constant voice in the back of your head going, okay, maybe I should not say this, maybe I should say this, I mean, even if I do say this, it's not representative of the entire, uh, you know, black community, it's, or even of black academics at the same time. But, you know, that that is the essential, like, you know, problem, right? That mm -hmm. is the problem that we, even in that minute way, we we still tend to try to really take care to figure out what we say online and see if it has some kind of, you know, if it has a kind of history to it, like uh, in the sense that, you know, if anybody tries to go back and pull it up and try, tries to dogpile you over it, that's a kind of, that's a, we're basically we're hypersensitive and hyper, no, not hypersensitive, hypervigilant mm -hmm. about what we say online, you know, and, that's a problem. What I the reason why I find that so, like we got into this conversation about Twitter and the online sphere is because you know this is the one place that maybe we can have some sort of voice that isn't you know particularly well we can swear for starters <laughs> you know we can actually swear and you know say okay you know fuck this particular demographic because you know we're really pissed off right we're really pissed off you know and we can't say that in particular spaces you know due to fear of being you know fired or receiving you know uh, you know 
any kind of actual punishment for. But that is still, you know, a background that still radiates in your background. You know, mm-hmm. when you look at uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor and the way she got received death threats uh, over uh, over criticisms of of Trump, right? Just Trump, right? And that's a kind of you know, it doesn't matter even if you're online or in the academy or uh, it's it it seems to like follow you everywhere, and that is such a disproportionate. Again, that word is it's so important. It's that that is so disproportionate compared to you know white people or white men, and that's what we find so you know frustrating because we want to say or feel without feeling like we represent an entire community where, you know, because, you know, women are not monoliths and surely even black women are not monoliths as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we have differing opinions, so we're not all the same. And yet we're tokenized at the same time. So what do you reckon? What, what, what do you think needs to change in like, what, what, what kind of model, like what kind of behavior do we need to model to make sure that these spaces are far more, uh, accessible and yeah. <laughs> and so that everyone can get in on with the fact that you know we still need our own voices without feeling like we're being pulled back so that we don't alienate some people especially our wonderful white ally yeah i mean it's very <laughs> wonderful with quotations right it's really hard because on the one hand you definitely like you're trying to be in you're trying to think about other people's opinions right which is a horrible yeah. way to be a political writer or to talk about politics, but the reality, <laughs> the reality is like this is human nature, right? Like when you're having a conversation with someone, you're you should be listening to them and you should mm-hmm. be trying to incorporate some of their ideas into what you think and trying to find ways where you meet in the middle, right? Um, and I think a lot of us make those negotiations in our everyday behaviors online and off. This is just sort of normal. Um, unless you're a total terrible, totally terrible person, you don't care what anyone thinks ever, and you just do whatever you want all the time. Like you're so, I mean, I don't know, but usually this is how it works, right? And I think in political conversations, job or no job, PhD candidate, not PhD candidate, whatever my condition is, I tend to, I tend to just be that way. And when I'm on Twitter, I'm also that way. So I try, for the most part, to have. I've tried to use Twitter as a space to have conversations not just to put out my idea and not listen to other people's ideas. At the same time, um, when people come at me and they're being condescending, they're being offensive, Mm -hmm. when they clearly don't know me, like they don't know my history online and my thoughts, um, it's frustrating. So, for example, sometimes people just see that, okay, I have a brown face and therefore (sighs) I must support Hillary Clinton or, like, I must be a neo-lib. Like, this is is literally, (laughs) it happened to me so many times. And so I'll say something that perhaps is criticizing someone like Sanders from the left. Um, and I'll get these responses that are like, how, why are you supporting the neoliberals? Like you must have voted for Hillary, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, actually, no, but thank you for making assumptions about my politics just because I'm being critical of your favorite person. Right. Like there's, and this is all wrapped into racial stuff and gender stuff. Right. Yeah. And so I think, um, one way to be better is to kind of give people the fucking benefit of the doubt. Benefit first of doubt. Of yeah. Yeah. And understand where people are coming from. Like, don't come out of the sky saying, like lecturing me on my own like political leanings. I mean, it's very weird. I think, and and again, a lot of the people doing this happen to be, I'm saying that, yeah, they happen to be men. They happen to be white (laughs) men. And I think that it's also just a socialization thing. I mean, there's within our society, white men are given ultimate authority. Um, They're taught that they are 
you know, like socially, at least maybe not by their parents always, but they're taught by the society that whatever they do, they're always right. Whatever they do is fine. And so I think a yeah, lot there's, of that there's no repercussions in. to, yeah, they own the space around mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. my goodness. And so that oh. becomes the problem. I mean, that's, that's the problem. And I think one way to, one way to sort of fix that is try to have conversations with people. Try to, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if, and I've talked about this in an article that I wrote for Progressive Army, try mm-hmm. to understand when people are being bad actors and good actors, when people have to give them the benefit of the doubt if they're coming from a good place. Um, and if, if it's obvious that like, okay, it's like, you know, you know, it's someone who's a famous pundit, neoliberal, blah, 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 or conservative, then that's different, I guess. But even then, don't always assume that their politics are all just monolithic either, right? I mean, there are some people who I think are are ending up going toward the Democratic Party as the answer because they don't feel like they have a space on the on the left, which is a bigger problem in my opinion, right? Um, yeah, a lot of people are worried about like losing young white men to the Nazis, and I'm sitting here going, wait a second, but what about like young black people who sat out this election and who are yeah. then watching you like they took a big stance, big stand in this election against Hillary Clinton and against neoliberalism, and then there are still white leftists online who are like shitting on them, so it, on yeah. shitting on black people in particular. So I'm like, wait, 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 y'all need to make sure that you're not also losing people to the Democrats or to the liberal left. Uh, in large droves because you don't want to talk about identity at all or you want to like dominate the space. So. Ah, wonderful class only politics. You know, I think I used to think that class only leftists were like, you know, rare. They were just the bizarrely anti identity people. I thought they were just one of the very few people. And unfortunately they kind of tend to dominate the discussion now, mm-hmm. now that I think about it, now that I look at it, because there's, there, te- there tends to be this kind of odd disdain for feminist politics mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that obviously always, at least if anybody has actually read a bloody feminist book, um, has seen where they talk about race, class, gender, in in you know in equal amounts mm-hmm. and that seems to just be missing uh amongst our a current leftist spaces online now why why is it that we think that online leftist spaces are so important i mean isn't uh, online isn't real right <laughs> i mean it's it's <laughs> depends on whom you ask um <laughs> it is it's both i mean at the end of the day it's just a mode of communication right so yeah even if even if these people are anonymous and even if they're, they don't show their faces and they have these weird tag names or whatever, they're also a person. There's a person behind that. And yes. this is a person who does stuff in real life. And so they take those ideas with them. And I think that's why I try to treat Twitter like I'm having a conversation. You know what I mean? Because I right. just, I want it to be like, I think it's important for it to mimic real life to some degree because these ideas go offline too. They're not all restricted yes. to online, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why we got into this conversation in the first place, because uh, I think, you know, people tend to think about social media, especially Twitter, as something as not just only online. It's as if, you know, there aren't real life attitudes uh, being transferred into these social media spaces and why there seems to be such kind you know, such a intense hatred towards leftist spaces. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think especially in such a trying time, especially under, um, 
I, I, I don't think we can keep up when it comes to global politics in terms of how capitalism is absolutely dreadful at this point. Mm-hmm. And almost every country is fucking around with people's lives and we don't have the time to sit and make jokes. And that's not, we're not saying that, you know, you can't have fun. The right. idea is that there's, there seems to be this kind of lack of sincerity, this kind of real anger over the fact that uh, we, we, we seem to be losing focus on, we seem to be losing touch with how, you know, reality is being altered, not just in terms of online spaces where I'm communicating with you. I would have no reason to communicate with you. I'm sitting in Australia. What the mm-hmm. hell do I have to do with you? Right. But these things matter because, you know, especially when I think about it in terms of like, you know, a globalized politics, uh, especially, you know, in terms of globalization and neoliberalism. And we have all of these politics, you know, these countries working together. And I feel like, you know, I- I'd like to use social media as a way to connect our politics together so that we can actually do something. And it's really hard when we're more stuck in weird, trivial conversations about who's being an arsehole instead of just not being an arsehole. Right. That will be kind of like, just don't be an arsehole. Let's just, we need to get shit done right now. And apparently we're we're, going to be doing this. And so it's really frustrating how people seem to think that, you know, real life attitudes don't matter online. Uh, How are we supposed to communicate? How are we supposed to build together? How are we supposed to grow? How are we supposed to take this offline? And what kind of value systems are we to bring with us to our own organizing spaces? What kind of uh, behaviors can we model so that, you know, we can actually create something good, sincere and wholesome so that we can actually really try and bring about changes, whatever small communities we can. I think, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think about when I think about social media. I mean, it's one of the places I kind of tend to go off quite a fair bit. But at the same time, that is that is probably far more authentic because, you know, actually challenging outside, like in our own real time spaces is so difficult. And yeah, that's why I think, you know, online politics matters because people are actually, you know, starting their careers, writing, podcasts, whatever. It's still happening. Right. And I think, you know, people need that space. People need that opportunity to be able to navigate those spaces and try and do something with it. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is the different, I mean, one of the things that you brought up about kind of being stuck in in an ironic space Right. You, yeah. you were talking oh. a bit. I mean, we see this in a lot and, you know, nothing against like uh, people on social media or in podcasts or on YouTube or whatever that rely on irony um, and jokes, I think, to sort of undergird their politics. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it is entertaining and I think it helps draw people in. Right. Because mm-hmm. we often say that like leftists are humorless and like we don't have any fun. We don't make any jokes. We don't see humor. And we're just always like suffering and complaining about something, which in large part is true. Um, but I think that. And the same is said, you know, for feminists, for anti-racist activists, like any group that's like trying to make change toward the better, we're often burdened by so many things that it is hard to find humor in the everyday, right? Because we're thinking about all the misery, like worldwide, um, that it gets difficult. But I think at the same time, on the other end, we can't make everything about humor either. And the reason for that is because what ends up happening is that 
when we don't take these issues seriously, usually it's usually it's people who like aren't as deeply impacted by these issues, right? Um, so they have sometimes a a license to laugh and laugh be the end all be all of their politics. Laughing being the end all be all of their politics. I think if we just laugh and if we're just ironic, we don't necessarily define who we are. We just define whom we're not, or like who we're not, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's I think a bigger problem because. Um, you know, I, I can come away from, and I listen to so many different podcasts. I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not discriminating here. I listen to a lot of different types, um, of leftist, poly, uh, you know, leftist podcasts. And I've noticed that often the ones that I find most compelling are the ones that are trying to really grapple with a lot of the reality. And I think yeah. that, you know, this, the humor is great, but it's not, it's not in, it, you know, it's, it only satisfies a five minute need for me. You know, it's like, okay, I got my laugh in. That's good. But now what? Yeah. Now what do I do? And so I think that's why we have to have a balance. And, and again, you know, there's a place for everybody. I think there's a place for that. But I think sometimes for some people, especially for whom these issues are not as immediate, it becomes the humor that overshadows everything else. And then that's where you stop. And there are actually, I mean, I've seen people sometimes complaining that within um, even offline meetings that they go to, People mm-hmm. may be talking about a certain podcast here, a certain <laughs> podcast there, and they don't even get to the like organizing part, right? I mean, there's the discussions pretty much start and stop at like, did you hear this podcast? And that's not healthy. I don't think at least not for not for a movement that wants to actually break ground and do something to help people who are suffering right now under all types of neoliberal capitalists, like, <laughs> you know, ways of controlling us and harming us. So it is, we have to get beyond it, but... I think that's much easier said than done, too. I mean, I try to do that with this podcast. I try to bridge my academic life and my, like, Twitter life, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> but, they're, they're, I mean, I think people should do what they do best, but we have to go beyond just laughing. So, I think why it takes, um, you know, like, serious offense to a lot of ironic jokes, this kind of, you know, um, cavalier attitude and cavalier kind of humor is because we're pretty much, you know, saturated with it. it it's it's everywhere. You will see it with, you know, hack pundits. You will see it with popular culture. It's, it's bleeding through. And I can't seem to control it in any way because obviously I have no power. But the thing <laughs> is, like... <laughs> But the, 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 like, you know, you know, I always tend to think of pop culture as, for example, for me, as soft power. It's very soft. It's very coercive. And it's very seductive because, you know, you are compelled to laugh at these horrible jokes that are made all the time. And if you try to break through that, if you try to cut through and say, hey, that's not actually funny you kind of tend to look like you're the fucking asshole here, right? <laughs> right? You know, like, oh, you don't know how to have fun. You don't know how to enjoy yourself. You don't know how to cut loose for a while. You don't know how, you don't know how to stop being quote unquote woke for a moment. Right. It's, it's kind of irritating because that's, again, that's, that's pretty much the broader context. That's pretty much how the same attitude you find with, you know, liberals as well, you know, liberal Democrats, you know, like, oh, you, you, you want to posit that you're far more, you know, enlightened than me on terms of politics, you, you want to be the, be the better person. That's what is, you know, assumed of us. Mm -hmm. We are seen as people that just want to destroy your fun. 
Right. In fact, actually, I don't think anybody wants fun more than us. It's just <laughs> that we, I mean, we're fucking miserable all the time. You think we don't want to have a laugh. We right. don't want to kick our feet up. It's just that I think, I think it's because we're so saturated with this kind of irony, this kind of incredible amount that we can't seem to ever have a sincere conversation, actual have heart to heart, which, and it's, and, and I think that's really important, especially, especially in a context where our politics seems to rely on the fact that we're not actually honest about what's, what, what politics is doing to us. How is it ruining our lives? How are jobs being lost? How are people losing their jobs? How is the healthcare being cut? How is the social security being cut? We're not able to have these conversations because we're far more stuck into, well, that's just life. Let's make a joke out of it for now because that's, that's all we've got going for us. And, and then we tend to just, we can't, we can't seem to move past that conversation. And that's really hard, right? Because I, yeah, it, it kind of requires a kind of vulnerability that nobody wants to you know, expose of themselves, sure. which I get. But at the same time, I feel like we're writing something awful now. And I think it's time that we get a little bit serious, just a, just a wee bit. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and we've done, the thing is, the, the frustrating part about this is that we've done this before. So if you think about the, at least in the U.S. context, in the Bush years, um, we had people like Jon Stewart, and on large, you know, in large part SNL, and they were constantly making fun. Jokes were the center yeah. of their politics. This is how we discuss politics. Everything, you know, pe- more people were watching like John Stewart than they were watching the mainstream news, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he became. I mean, he often had to clarify. Look, I am not the news. I make fun of the news, but I am not the news. Don't watch mm-hmm. me for the news. But the reality is that. You know, we have we have podcasts and people on Twitter now who are saying the same thing. They're literally saying the same thing. But the reality is people are going to gravitate towards what's entertaining. And this is normal human behavior. Um, but at the same time, it didn't work with Bush. I mean, it didn't take down Bush. He he and his cohort of terrorists, mm. global terrorists, let's just call them what they are. Yeah, um, absolutely. They were never prosecuted for their crimes against humanity and the wars that they started under zero real, you know, real pretense. I mean, it was insane that we had no, they had, there was no um, retribution, legal or otherwise. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty crazy that we had all these things happen and nothing was done about it. And people laughed all the way through the administration, but it didn't help fix anything, Right. Um, and I think even in the aftermath, we didn't see, you know, we didn't see Obama do anything about it. We're clearly not going to see Trump do anything about it. He's only going to worsen things. So I just think it's important that we look back to the very, very recent past and say to ourselves, humor is important. It is necessary. We need it. We have to have it. But at the same time, there has to be a link between the humor and the action. Because I think the other thing that humor does that's fascinating is it it helps just it helps sort of bend reality. So if everything is at the stage of humor, right, we don't ever, as you said, you know, we you kind of started touching on this, you don't ever grapple with what's actually going on. And mm-hmm. until it's too late, right? Until it's way, way, way too late. Um, so that's, that's, I think, one of the challenges that, that we're dealing with. Um, I think also this idea that you mentioned about, you know, um, people who, for example, are feminists or, uh, you know, anti-racist or whatever, we're not, we're often told that we're too serious. And I think this, it's sort of an irony, right? Because we are, the reason I think that we're often excluded from so many of these spaces is precisely because we're going to be the ones to inject some reality. 
And yeah. I don't think that's, we don't fit into that puzzle. You know, it's, it's, there's not a space for us because we will be the ones to say sometimes maybe this, we need to take this a little seriously. Seriously. Yeah. And I think, uh, especially when these spaces are so, you know, male dominated, and even if it's not male dominated, there's this kind of, uh, masculine nature to these spaces and that's what's so frustrating especially for women who don't conform or or non-binary folk who don't conform to those specific ideas of masculinity and cannot keep up with that kind of space I feel like it's important to I don't know take it a step back for a second maybe calm down for a while I don't think we need to flex our muscles all the time in terms of how masculine we are and and I think that's that's also another aspect of how, you know, one of the reasons why when we think about, you know, the sexual harassment coming out from our spaces as well, mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. We have liberals, you know, get, they get really particularly smug about, you know, leftist men, you know, being outed as sexual predators. And then you also have leftist men get really smug about their fellow uh, men being, you know, out of a sexual predators. And that's the kind of thing that's so frustrating because there there seems to be no uh, self-reflection, mm-hmm. like a moment to step back for a second. What's going on in our spaces? Why weren't people talking out before? Why why do they still feel like they can't talk about it? I mean, you still see a lot of women, like, you know, having a whisper network, like almost like a grapevine whisper mm-hmm. network, where they're talking about other men to stay away from. I find this person dodgy. I find this person weird. And we're not going to, let's, don't engage with them. And that very fear, I mean, the fact that that fear, which is felt in real life, why women don't report sexual harassment or abuse, that kind of behavior still being seen in leftist spaces. And that's why I find that if if that behavior is still present in our spaces where it's supposed to be safe enough to come out boldly to say that someone has been an ab- uh, someone has been abusive, if you're seeing those behaviors there, then ultimately we're kind of failing, right? Mm-hmm. We're failing in the fact that we're not able to create those spaces alone. Those spaces in particular have to be separate from what we what we see in our, you know, ultimately patriarchal world so so that's the kind of yeah that's the kind of thing that I find so infuriating and I honestly one of that's one of the reasons why I control whom I with whom I interact with online I don't follow new people all the time because I'm always skeptical because I you know we tend to notice we do notice who is being abusive we do notice who is laughing at what mm-hmm. and so we decide okay I'm not going to interact with this person or if they do interact with me, it's not going to be over something significant. I'm not going to allow them into, you know, uh, private messages or try to meet them offline. No, I'm probably just going to keep my distance as much as possible. And even that is kind of like, that was something I was like reflecting over because I don't want to be silent either about people who I, who I think are abusive. There were a couple of guys who were outed as, you know, uh, predators and one of them in particular had a lot of followers. And this was well, this one was a recent one. And I found that person to be particularly suspicious, but I never said anything. Hmm. And that's also something that I think about as well. How, why am I being silent as well? And, and I don't think that it's particularly my fault. It's simply almost a, 
a form of self-preservation, a form of like trying to protect yourself because mm-hmm. you know that if you were to say something, you are going to be interrogated to, to hell and back and you really don't want it. You don't want it. And that's the kind of humiliating process that we try to protect ourselves from. And the fact that it's still existing in leftist spaces is absolutely unacceptable. Right. And I think it goes back again to this idea of dogpiling, right? Um, because even in the case of political opinions or noticing something, I mean, I, I one of the good examples here that's parallel a bit is, you know, pointing out sometimes that, oh, yeah, there's there's racism in this space or you're being a little bit racist, you're being a little bit xenophobic or whatever. And I think sometimes because people are on these people are on the left who are committing these things, they say to themselves, oh, you know, of course, I'm above that. So anything that I do, I'm an ally. So you can't really deem what I'm, yeah, I know. you can't really, de- how, think about like, how dare you, right? Like, how dare you say, or, you know, interrogate or question my leftist bona fides when in actuality you're saying, no, I want to make you a better leftist by pointing this out to you and a way that you can make our space better and more inclusive and like work for everyone because just a minute ago you were complaining about how there are no women and there are no people of color at your meetings or at your, you know, social forum or whatever. Um, but then you're engaging in behavior that turns them away. So I'm trying to help you. Like I'm trying to make things better for you and you're not listening precisely because you have this belief that you are somehow shielded by virtue of being on the left. And I think with regard to a lot of what you were saying just now about sexual harassment and people being kind of creepy and whatever, we're often reluctant to say anything because we don't want to we a don't want to air dirty laundry necessarily and give more fodder for um people who are attacking us from the right but then at the Mm -hmm. same time we also don't want to have to deal with people who don't believe us or who don't understand what we're really getting at or who also see us technically as the bad actors when we're actually the ones who are operating in good faith and trying to make things better but i want to go back uh quite a bit i mean now that we've we've talked uh, more about this harassment situation, but I think something that you mentioned a few minutes ago is also interesting to pick up on. You talked a bit about how some of these spaces um, exhibit a type of masculinity that is aggressive or um, a type of humor that doesn't necessarily allow for you to inject any seriousness or, or certain aspects of what we would, I mean, even your own personality, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, it reminded me really of a lot of the responses we're seeing on the left now are aggressive, even to the point of actual physical violence. And I know personally, like, I, I would probably, if I had a gun, I would, like, end up shooting myself. Um, if, oh my I'm very accident-prone. I'm accident-prone. So oh I'm the, I always say, you know, if, when the revolution comes, I'm going to be the one writing for the newspaper, but I will not be on the field. Like, I have a different – I will have a different role. Um, but I think that, you know, on the one hand, I really appreciate a lot of the um, – disruption of sorts of our sort of respectable narrative, right? Where you have yeah. to, be, to be good little leftists, you have to just be there and be in, sit there and be intellectuals and have, you know, quiet debates, which is what a lot of the Democrats focused on, right? Like, we're, yeah. we're going to compromise a lot. We're not going to actually fight for anything. Um, and then you have some people who on the left left are going to such an extreme where they're like, okay, I'm going to go get a gun. I'm going to fight. I'm going to prepare how to, you know, prepare to use my gun, et cetera. And yeah. I respect all of that. But I also wonder, like, in the process of focusing so much on physical acts of, of aggression that if in the process we're also, we're like simultaneously overlooking the necessity of care in, on, mm-hmm. in leftist spaces. And I think that this is really important. So there's a lot 
that we talk, I mean, everything is waged, everything is discussed as a fight, right? As a struggle. Yeah. Everything is a fight, fight, fight. And I wonder, like, can we have, is there space for it? Do you think, is there space for us to think about more quiet acts that we can engage in that are just as impactful um, in the now that perhaps we haven't fully given enough attention to? I think, I think one of the things that I like to think when, when I think about violence, because I think about violence a lot uh, as as a person who has inflicted violence and as a person who has been subjected to violence at the same time, physical violence, I mean. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I think about violence in very nuanced terms as, okay, okay, so you have fascists. Let's just say we have fascists in the front and we have to be violent. There's there's no other option. You know, they, they've got guns. They're ready to go. And what, what I try to bring into the conversation is, okay, I'm not saying that, you know, the struggle won't be violent. When I try to, you know, demasculinize spaces, I also try to demasculinize ideas about struggle, right? I don't want us to uh, romanticize the idea of violence. I, I tend to think, okay, let's if we're going to have to use violence to protect ourselves, if we're going to have to, you know, use violence to struggle against a fascist state, let's not enjoy it. Let's see it as something that was necessary to do, Mm -hmm. but let's try not to bring that back into our spaces because the whole point of fighting white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, imperialism is so that we no longer continue the cycle of violence because we don't want it back into our spaces. Right. Right. And, and it's, so I think that, you know, even if we have to use violence to fight back against our oppressors, I want us to always come back to conversations about empathy, about care, about compassion, because we we really do need to model new behaviors that need to exist in the left. What is the alternative to our current uh, world of, that is excessively violent, mm-hmm. right? Our world is excessively violent. We we can't seem to escape it, not even in our uh, fictional media, which is supposed to be a form of escapism. We can't seem to escape it from that either. Right. <laughs> so it, there's simply no place. And so that's why, you know, you know, every time I used to bring up the conversation, it's like, oh, let's not punch Nazis. It's not because I actually care about the fucking Nazis. I care about the fact that like, what do we bring back? Like, right. what are we going home to? And if 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 I were to have, like, say, for example, if I had a partner who had to go out and kill Nazis, I don't want them coming back with that same kind of violence, right? I don't want them... It's also how we talk about even uh, people who, you know, serve in the military. Mm-hmm. We know that once they go out there, well, they come back with a form of violence that they aren't able to control. And we need to keep working towards, you know bringing out conversations about empathy, especially, you know, men and masculinity, because they're, you know, they're so characterized, their entire masculinity depends on how dominant, how aggressive, how violent they are. And we really want them to, you know, get that out of their, we don't, not get them out of their systems, like, as in like venting it out, but literally get it out of their systems in terms of unlearning it. Mm. And it's so important that we create that kind of leftist basis, which is both honest and compassionate and sincere and even if we did have disagreements or even righteous anger it it cannot escalate to the point where we are actually genuinely enjoying shooting each other in the head that is just that is not exactly a world that is ridden you know rid of patriarchy Mm -hmm. I mean that's important to think about I, I think it's also just 
you know, and not just even to the point of physical violence, right? But um, mm-hmm. any type even of aggression. Or, yeah, 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 like verbal abuse. Um, to to large. I mean, I don't know. On the one hand, I'm like, yes, I want to tell a Nazi. And I actually got in trouble just the other day. Uh, on I was in Twitter jail for 24 hours because I told a white supremacist group to, like, choke on its own bile. Um, I didn't use I any curse so words. Bad. Yeah, I was, I was good because I, I thought I wasn't violating anything because I wasn't using curse <laughs> words or any of that. Um, but it doesn't matter, well, obviously, on Twitter. Of course, you know, you can't tell Nazis to, you know, fuck off. Right, obviously. yeah. But we, we need Nazis in our world, Wendy, don't you know? I know. It's like, what is it? The um, the space for ideas. Like, we have to have a fair space for all ideas, right? Oh, um, so. oh absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but, I mean, I, you know, I, but I think that, again, even, even in the way that we talk to one another, um, it is important to have that. Not, I mean, we don't need to baby one another, right? And I, even, no, I have no. issues with, like, safe space rhetoric and stuff. I think a lot of it needs to be... Um, problematized and talked about in a way that's that's more nuanced but I do feel like sometimes the aggression bleeds into our spaces to a degree that again you can't you can't dissent you can't have a different idea you can't have a real conversation everyone's always on edge I think um you know it's we have to find a way to not only talk like speak better to one another but also to consider those who even aren't getting a chance to speak in such spaces um that are often left out and I think this is where the care element really comes in because we focus so much on the fight we're not focusing enough about we're not focusing enough on I should say what we can do on a person to person level to really kind of take stock and notice what's happening on the ground a lot of it is you know a lot of our discussions tend to be in this sort of hypothetical space uh, mm-hmm. when when the revolution comes, right? Or like, if a Nazi <laughs> does this, or maybe, you know, there's a lot There's a lot of like um, thinking ahead and in the process of doing that, and I think, again, a lot of that language, uh, uh, even of thinking ahead, has this sort of militaristic element to it. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's one of the reasons yeah. why I kind of stopped. Oh, I'm sorry. Please no, it's okay. Me. I just, I think that, you know, but I, but I think that in, in this, all this planning for the future, right, we lose track of like what's happening. Like what is, is your neighbor eating tonight? Right. Like, are people being taken care of on a day to day, low level basis that I actually can contribute to as opposed to like just learning how to shoot a gun? We have to be able to do multiple things at once, you know? Yeah, because I think, you know, it it feels like we almost kind of need to rehabilitate our our minds at this point. We need to actually fix this attitude of, you know, uh, bootstraps. We actually still carry it around because we can't seem to. We can't, we're so atomized. We're so atomized. We have no idea. Like you just said, you know, is my neighbor eating tonight? Uh, are they able to pay rent? Are they, do they have their healthcare sorted out? We have no idea. And, and I think it's because, you know, we've essentially caved into uh, this capitalist mindset of, you know, bootstrapism. Right. Bootstrap. That's what I'm going to call it. Bootstrapism. <laughs> um, but, and I think, you know, again, it comes back to that politics of care. Like, do we actually really care what's happening in our in our communities? Not just in our communities, but what's just happening next door? And I think that is the kind of thing we want to bring into, um, you know, leftist spaces. And unfortunately, we can't seem to do that if we're far more interested in just, I don't know, coalesce with people that we simply agree with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think I think one one question that I did have for you is like. Can we be oppositional? Can we actually have 
you know, oppositional ideas and continue to coexist? Is there, I'm, I'm not, that's a very liberal way of thinking, but I mean in terms <laughs> of left, left ideas, in leftist ideas, like say, for example, anarchists versus, you know, communists. Mm-hmm. I say versus. I hope that never happens. That's very liberal of me, but I actually do not enjoy the idea of these two, well, killing each other, where you, considering they kind of tend to do that a lot. They tend to um, get really excited about that hey, anarchists get the wall too. And it's just sitting there going, wow, that's crazy. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Really horrible way of talking, but okay. Yeah, there's Um, a lot of like gulag and guillotine stuff going on uh, that for me, I mean, to some degree it's funny, uh, but on the other hand, it's like, guys, we're not really going to do this, are we? Like, I I hope that it doesn't get to this point. I don't think it will, but. But that's what I mean. Can we be a slightly oppositional? I don't mean like, can we exist with the Nazis? No, I don't mean that. I mean, (laughs) can we be oppositional in this sense? I do not want to exist with Nazis. No, thank you. Right. I think so. I mean, I really do. I, I, this is, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do for this particular podcast and the left pocket project as a whole, I always have to tell people like, this project is more about having kind of a big tent on the left. So anything yeah. left of the Democratic Party, if you're considering, you know, I mean, right now the Democratic Party is so far right that almost anyone can be to the left of the Democratic Party. <laughs> it's a big group. I know it's a big group. But I also, I mean, for me, the bottom line is, are you fighting or pushing for equality for all people? Are you mm-hmm. recognizing people's humanity? Are you thinking of ways and strategies to help protect that and to sustain that, right? And I think yes. that there are many different methods, and this is where people have the disagreements, but I think a lot of the disagreement is performative, right? And people wanting yeah. to kind of mark out their territory and shape their own space in their own image. And for me, I am more of an a la carte type of politics person, so I say uh-huh. take this from this group, take that from another group. There's some things that, you know, for example, right now what's happening in Greece, the anarchist movement there is doing a lot of amazing work to protect immigrants mm-hmm. and so many things, and I think that, you know, we can learn from each other if we just stop all the bullshit and listen to one another and think about where our histories have converged. And I think if you look at, I mean, obviously there's <laughs> there's a lot to be said about how obsessed people are with World War II. It's constant, mm-hmm. you know, we constantly are talking about Nazis and things like that. But we're not focusing enough on, I think, some of the ways that all these disparate left-leaning groups really came together and tried Mm -hmm. to fight fascism. I mean, this is, this is a huge, a huge moment in, in world history. We can kind of see even, you know, anti-colonial movements, Mm anti-fascist movements, and on all layers of the spectrum, levels of the, you know, points of the spectrum of leftism. And I think it's important for us to remember these times, um, you know, remember those times now in these times, uh, ways that we can, work together as opposed to just fighting and we'll deal with the methods later. I mean, the point is that you have to win first. If you yeah. don't, you know, if, <laughs> yeah, like you, there's no method, there's no method of governance. If you don't actually deal with what's happening right now, like right now we have in the U S and many, many other countries are, they're being run by the right. And so mm-hmm. we have to think about, you know, what kind of, if we want to get to the point where we're governing or we have, even if you're an anarchist, if we have some semblance of a society that works together, we have to, first of all, um, get over this hump of like far right leaning governance pretty much worldwide, save a few yeah. pockets here and there that aren't run by complete, complete, complete fascists. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say fascists, but in our, you know, it's in some places they are actual fascists. So it is, fascists. yeah, we're not even tough. being hyperbolic here. No, we're, they're like, I am a fascist. Like this is. <laughs> You know, they're it's, self-proclaimed, it's, excited about being fascist. So it's, 
it's tough, but we have to, I think, and, focus on it in that way. And I think, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have right now, like you were talking about perform performative politics at the moment. I mean, I, I like to think about the fact that we seem to forget about how, you know, there are conversations about how liberals won the cultural war and the right-wingers won the uh, the economic war in terms of uh, in what kind of economy we continue to live in. But it, for me, it kind of is irritating to that people haven't picked up on the fact that even this culture, the supposed culture that, you know, liberals won, is that it's actually pretty much, you know, injected by conservative, by a conservative economy. I mean, what yeah. is culture at this point? And so we are fighting against not just uh, you know, you know, capitalism, but we're also fighting against these, you know, uh, these cultural attitudes that are so actually really rooted into conservative ideas. And I, I find that really frustrating because that makes it seem like it's almost impossible for leftists who do question culture, who do question art, who do question uh, the economy and our attitudes, our ethics, our morals, everything. It seems to be like, you know, far more smaller. It just seems to keep getting smaller. And that's why I find that, you know, this kind of atomized community in even on online spaces, you know, rather frustrating. And how do you how do you how do we how do we work with these people who seem to say that we won the cultural war? I mean, it's 2017. Gay marriage should be illegal. I mean, that's a kind of rhetoric we, t we tend to come across all the time. It's mm -hmm. 2017. It's right. 2017. As if, I don't know, I don't know, for me, that makes no sense at this point. <laughs> it's like, what, what are you, okay, it's 2017. We still continue to live under a capitalist economy. So I don't, I don't know why, what makes you think our cultural attitudes have shifted in any way if capitalism continues to exist. Right. I mean, it's frustrating because as some, like I study history, right? And one of the things mm -hmm. that I, you know, the first thing you learn when you start working on history is that teleology or this idea that like progress happens over time, right? This like mm -hmm. from zero, like Z, A to Z, you see things get progressively better and history operates in the straight line um, or like a, an upward, upward diagonal line. I'm really bad at math, so I can't even remember what that's <laughs> called. Like a slope, an upward slope or something. Uh, I'm uh, imagining the calculus graphs at the moment, but, um, oh <laughs> you know, but I think In that, an ascending that, manner or something. Yeah. I mean, the things always, the things get better over time. Right. And, and oh, that's, that's, that's garbage basically. I mean, history, especially for groups that have been marginalized considerably, um, and over time, you know, it, it, it always say that like black history operates in cycles, for example, mm -hmm. it's yeah. not so much a question of a straight line. Uh, it may be a straight line for some groups, but for us, it's a matter of like, you take a few steps forward, then you take a few steps back, then you might like fall off a cliff, then you like find a way to get, you know, there's just, it's not a straight line. It's like a circle that just keeps, that sometimes like you find yourself in these positions where you feel like you want to say, you know, things are worse now than they were in X year. And the reality is that I, I don't even like that kind of um, rhetoric, even though I, I've often engaged in it myself. But I think mm -hmm. that it, it doesn't help us because it makes us feel like, well, we're in the now, and so now has to be better than the past. And the rea the real reality, like what happens in history, is that's not the case, right? Um, and I think that we, you know, if if we can, if we can find ways to keep things, just keep people from falling off a cliff, that would be nice, right? If we could kind of avoid the cliff falling moment, 
that would at least keep us at some sort of plateaued state. That would be nice. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not so focused on like everything going in a, in a, going in an upward, uh, tilt direction. Yeah. 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 But I would like to keep certain things. I mean, I hate to say this. This sounds so weird, right? So like, I want the status quo. I don't want the status quo, but I want something that's better than the bottom. You need a break for a second. Right. I want something better than the bottom. And I think that, you know, people who are, who are thinking of, um, what's going on right now is like, it's 2017, as you said, and therefore we must have X, Y, Z. They're not considering all the things that have happened in 2017 that are distinctly 2017 problems. <laughs> like, I mean, we have, you know, I, I think we, we talk, but when we, when we do this thing where we play with time and we say in this year, we should have progress towards X, Y, and Z. What we forget is that like for Republicans, this is progress. Right. Yeah. For them, oh, it is oh my an achievement. God. The tax bill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is straight out of 1980s. That is right. straight out of Aikenism. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's almost like we've gone like 40 years backwards. Mm-hmm. It feels that way, but it, it for them, this is their progressive present, right? Yeah. And we have to kind of remember that, like this, the way things happen on this cycle is that we're not going to win every battle. We try, but at the end of the day, it's not so much even about going back in time. It's about being on someone else's time. That's what it feels yeah. like. You know, it, it's not so much a traveling back, but it's a, you're in the present, but you're on someone else's progressive present. Like you're on someone else's uptick um, at the moment. And that's, that kind of timeline is not one that necessarily helps you materially, of course, but it's one that's the reality that we're dealing with. And I think we have to, we have to, I think we have to come to terms with that because much like our discussion about humor, right? I think this, mm-hmm. this limited grasp of temporal reality is also where some people are. They're saying, well, you know, we, this is like, we're reliving the eighties again. And so if you're like traveling in time, you're not going to deal with the present right? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the problem. We have to find a way to kind of conceive of this as our time, as our present and yeah. filled with problems that we need to address right now and not keep thinking about the past. Like think about the past in terms of how to fix the problems, but don't get so stuck in it that you feel like, you know, we're going to have the we're same back in the 80s. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think, I think what I think, uh, especially when it comes I think this is why we like to call, you know, Americans, at least when I think about Americans, there's this kind of, you know, uh, political amnesia that they tend to suffer with. You know, it's like they forget every aspect of our history. What are are the, you know, various precedents that led to this particular situation? And that's why, you know, you have these discourses against Trump as, you know, as if he's the ultimate form of evil. When he's simply the logical conclusion of these 40 years or more of, you know, economic and cultural policies. And it's, it's, it's just, it's kind of frustrating that we keep, we seem to be doing this every political cycle mm-hmm. and that this kind of, if we're going to keep doing this every four years or where we continue, or at least, I don't know, like last election, I don't think we've ever rehashed an election as much as we have this one. <laughs> I mean, and well, maybe maybe Bush Gore. I think Bush Gore we did maybe say. Bush Gore, I mean, but yeah, yeah but uh, well, I think I was a bit too young for that. But that <laughs> one, it was, it was, it still, it was just so weird, you know, because we're st- we're doing it already. We're still doing this political amnesia thing where we can't seem to move past 2016, November 21st. That's it. Time stopped there. Mm-hmm. Time stopped, and we can't seem to move on. We can't seem to look back and say, okay. 
so-and-so number of events led to this. Now let's try and, I don't know, fucking turn the tables. Just literally flip it. Right. Flip it the fuck out. Because, no, we, we, we continue to do this thing where we still idolize people like, you know, fucking Hillary Clinton, George Bush, the, the entire rehabilitation of actual war criminals. Yeah, political amnesia is a word I'm just going to continue to use here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's Good accurate. Phrase, yeah. It's definitely accurate. Oh, oh no. I, I don't think I can handle any more. We would have... Do you miss the times we had Bush as president? Oh, my God. <laughs> it is appalling. I mean, even for me, I think looking at... I, while I understand it, I think some of even the, like, I wish we still had Barack as president moments are frustrating for me. Because I think that while on the one hand, you see a lot of people engaging in them as if to say... I mean, in some in some moments, it feels like a type of appeasement towards people of color to say, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry what, like, my white peers and my white family voted for. I wish we could go back to the time of Obama when things are better for you. And I was like, well, oh. I mean, for me, that first of all, that's patronizing. But then second of all, it's also not reflecting on the ways that there were a lot of losses for people of color and especially poor people of color in the United States during the Obama years, given a lot of it was left over from Bush, but there were certain things that he exacerbated. Right. And I think that, you know, especially if you consider foreign policy and all of this, it's, it's not as though all of those eight years was, you know, that we were represented by the same man that we saw in the Buzzfeed articles. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for some people they've crystallized this moment, much like they did with JFK as well. Um, as sort of like this idyllic special moment in time where everything was fine and there was nothing bad going on. Meanwhile, you know, if you think about what JFK was doing in terms of foreign policy, I mean, it was terrible, right? Um, a lot of the, you know, things that were happening in Latin America and the like anti-communist actions and, and anti-leftist uh, stuff that he was doing, um, very violent acts. And I think one could argue the same thing about Obama with regard to his extension of the war on terror, his reach into, yeah. you know, further reach into Africa, et cetera. So there are a lot of things that were happening under Obama that I don't think people were even aware of when they say these things. But their ignorance about these issues also, I think, mark out the fact that you guys don't really under, like some of them really don't understand. You know, it's it's not a matter of going back in time and missing someone or wanting things to be better, but that we need to face reality now. We need to deal with it. We need to fight the problems that we're seeing. We need to care for people who are being neglected and harmed, including ourselves, right? Um, And I think we need to find better ways of building relationships with people instead of just focusing on, um, you know, kind of like reveling in some imagined past that unfortunately we we can't have back. You know, like there's, that's not a way to move forward as a, as humanity and certainly not as a country. Um, oh, and you're speaking too much sense. What's gonna happen now? <laughs> but oh, switching no. gears entirely, actually, wait, I would like to switch gears if we can, uh, but feel free yeah, to finish sure. your thought if I just interrupted a thought. But no, one of the people think. that I think does grapple with reality fairly well is bell hooks. And yes. she does so in a way that I think is easily accessible for anyone. Like most people can just pick up a book of hers and sort of be introduced to feminism um, in a way that's sort of welcoming almost, right? Like when you read her work, you're like, you find yourself being embraced by it in large part. And so yes. I'd be curious to know, because you often quote Bell Hooks online um, when you're talking about feminism, but I'd like to know your thoughts on, like, for example, why did you, what about Bell Hooks speaks to you? Um, because you cite her a lot. And then also, where do you think some of her philosophy could be best applied to some of the stuff that we've been talking about during this past hour? 
Um, so one of the reasons why I was first drawn to Bell Hooks is, was because she approached feminism from a way that was not just accessible, but it was also because it came from a place of love, actually. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most important aspects, right? And she actually, in, in, in many, many of her books, she cites, uh, you know, Buddhist ideas. And she's also, she even calls herself a, uh, a Christian Buddhist as well. But that is not the important part. The important part was that she decided that she wanted to move beyond her identity as a, uh, you know, move beyond her pain, right? You don't want to be characterized solely by your pain. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be characterized solely by this particular identity as a black person, even though there's no way she's denying her identity as a black person, as a black woman. And so that thing kind of drew me. So what exactly are the ideas that she stood for? And that was what drew me in. And then there was also this aspect of, you know, there's this question about being a feminist and how you deal with, you know, masculinized spaces, men in general. And then there was the aspect of what white men and how she questioned even black masculinity. And that's how I kind of, you know, started to relate my relationships with, you know, uh, you know, brown men, Indian men, uh, white men in this Australian context. Um, this place is ridiculously white, by the way. <laughs> um, so, so it's mostly my, my interactions with men are mostly like white people. So, but that is the kind of thing, right? And so obviously I'm not saying like, well, because I'm a feminist, I hate men. Obviously that is a, you know, that's, that's a very, you know, um, right-wing idea about what feminists are but that's not what I'm battling against anyway the idea was how am I supposed to interact with men in a healthy manner because I obviously cannot function in this world without interacting with men so obviously I need to try and find a different approach and so I started reading you know books like you know uh The Will to Chain Men Masculinity and Love I read Jackson Katz I read uh Michael Kimmel all of these, you know, the other, you know, the other two uh, men, you know, are uh, uh, academics who write about masculinity from a feminist perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I realized that a lot of these leftist spaces are really dominated by that, you know, kind of macho culture, that kind of uh, flexing of muscles between different kinds of men. And that's one of the reasons why I realized, you know, men, there's, there's so much more to men. And they don't give themselves any kind of credit. Mm. They don't give themselves any kind of, you know, they don't give themselves a chance to actually grow out of these really toxic ideas. And that's what's also, you know, what's harming them. And that's what's harming women at the same time. So obviously, you know, there are a lot of feminists who say that, you know, Bell Hooks is far too sympathetic towards, you know, men. But at the same time, Wendy, tell me, are you going to really function in this world without men? Like, what are we going to do? Are we just going to throw them off a cliff? I mean... What are we just going to push them into the <laughs> sea? What do we do with them, honestly? And as a person who, you know, is kind of, you know, non-violent and does not want to kill people ever right. at all, um, obviously this is not a viable solution to me. And that's why I got into Bell Hook so much and that kind of accessible language, especially to a person who... Uh, hadn't read academic texts before because they're so ridiculous to read. Like, yeah. So yeah. that's a kind of one of the reasons why I feel like you know trying to 
decolonize that mindset, that mindset of that macho culture. And there's something that even women participate in as well. And that's why, you know, we touched upon this at some point privately where we talked about, you know, cool girlism, Mm -hmm. right? We talked about how, you know, uh, women on the left or, you know, queer women on the left also, you know, they participated in this kind of weird macho life behavior. And I feel like, you know, women and non-binary folks and queer folks can be angry, can be furious without perpetuating those really masculine ideas about anger. And that's one of the reasons, and that's such a, that's such a fine line to walk on, but because nobody seems to imagine how that anger can look like, nobody seems to, they seem to fall into that masculine idea of aggression instead of trying to figure out a way to be righteously angry without being patriarchal as well. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, you know, I have angry Buddhist in my bio because I am fucking (laughs) furious, like all the time. But at the same time, I'm not going to wish someone to, like, I don't know, kill themselves or I'm going to, you know, dunk your head in a toilet. I'm not going to say these things right. because I find them so weird and alienating as well, especially to people who don't talk like this. Well, I'm more interested in engaging with people who don't know how to form sentences or form, like, you know, form coherent sentences because I, I find that difficult too. I find it difficult to to write specific ideas in a coherent sense and not make it seem like I'm either too, uh, I don't know, uninformed about something, but at the same time, you know, or completely alienating at the same time. So it's 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 one of those few things. That's why I when I participate in this, when I advocate for feminism, I advocate for this kind of loving, empathetic kind of feminism where I can understand my opposition. Same thing with how we talked about the white working class. I don't actually have to, uh, you know, especially if they are right wing uh, white working class people, I don't actually have to like them, but I can actually try and figure out what is going on with them mm-hmm. and see what are the economic policies that affect them. Do they, of course, do they require healthcare? Sure. Maybe that is one of the few, those are you know, some of the few ways we can actually pull them to the left or at least like left liberal, try to at least get them to accept, you know, socialized healthcare, socialized uh, education. Uh, so that's a, that's a kind of thing, right? Like the basic, you know, the basis for any kind of social justice has to be, you know, the foundation of it has to come from a place of love and empathy or else for me, it just means nothing. Right. I think that also kind of helps us segue into this idea of, the posturing that you mentioned, right? You talked a bit about how everything is sort of the, the macho culture, and we've talked about that a bit in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think that also happens to do that is a unfortunately really rather toxic behavior I see a lot on now happening in some left media spaces is this inability to give credit for ideas as well. Um, so there's a lot of like sort of uh, poaching of ideas I see of, you know, black women leftists or, um, you know, black queer leftists, et cetera, queer leftists of color, fill in the blank. Um, people will kind of comb through their timelines, take their ideas, regurgitate them or repackage them and regurgitate them, but they won't have them on their shows as guests and they won't have them on their shows as presenters. What do you think about, I mean, this is a problem that I've noticed, but you may have noticed as well. 
this was actually a question I was posing. I was waiting to pose to you as well. Like, you know, <laughs> we, we, we see an increasing number of, you know, white intellectuals, a lot of white intellectuals, but they draw from, you know, black uh, ideas and black experiences from black culture, from black academics. What the hell is happening? But where, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they are, you know, they draw on black discursive uh, practices. So what, what is, are, are these people our allies? What, what, what are we actually, you know, creating a real legitimate, sincere coalition with these people? What's going on? Well, I think this is a question we both pose to we're right. posing for each other. Yeah. The, and I am personally, I don't, I don't see that kind of credit all too often. Uh, actually, just recently, there was a Guardian article about, you know, uh, sexual, uh, about a man, his name is Jed uh, Goyette, and just recently he was, um, he cited one of my tweets about Harvey Weinstein, hmm. uh, you know, where it's, you know, if I paraphrase it, I say something like, you know, it's difficult as hell to, you know, uh, you know, it's easy as hell to, you know, call Weinstein and Trump monsters, but, you know, it's almost impossible to criticize the men in your life the same way because you know there's a kind of distance towards you know you know Trump and Weinstein you're not going to face immediate repercussions mm-hmm. however you know arguing about that and that that he he wrote an entire article because of that one tweet so that was <laughs> a one way I'm not kidding yeah that I should probably send it to you and that it you know it showed up on on the Guardian in fact my tweet even ended up on ABC fucking news in right. Australia it was really funny to me but I also, at the same time, I felt slightly validated. You know, I felt um, even if I hadn't written an article or in some sort of way, I did feel validated. But at the same time, there was also the sense of, you know, I, there's a sense of, oh, I, I should have written that article and then maybe I would have gotten some kind of, you know, uh, I don't, not recognition, but some kind of, you know, these are ideas that, you know, that come from me and I, you know, I obviously got from somewhere else, but at the same time, you know, from, you know, uh, feminist theory, but at the same time, I feel like there, it felt like a bit of a bone, right? You know, like I, I felt like, you know, someone threw me a bone just, just for a second there. Right. But at the same time, I also felt slightly invisibilized. And there's no, I mean, I think the thing is, is that you, there's no material, um, yeah, this side of it for you. Ch- yeah, like he's gonna get paid. He's gonna get paid for writing that article for the Guardian, and it's gonna go on his resume. But you, there's a lot of. I mean, there are lots of things, ways that like women of color, queer people of color, etc., leftists contribute to these discourses, but they're not necessarily credited. Not only are they not credited, but there also tends to be no um, material side to it. Like there's, they're not getting paid for it. They're not being, they, they can't, they can't put it on their resume. They can't talk about it in a yeah. job interview. I can't right? put this article on my resume. I can't right. say like, oh, well, uh, this, because of this, uh, this article is, this article happened because of me. No. Right. So obviously, you know, this person, his name is Jared, uh, I, as I mentioned, uh, Jared actually talked to me. I talked to him. Uh, we discussed it over, you know, on the phone a fair bit. And he even credited me on in when he got interviewed by Australian media here. But at the same time, again, like you said, obviously I have no, you know, personal uh, anger or, you know, just, you know, like frustration with him specifically. Mm-hmm. It is more about the, you know, the general uh, society we live in. There's no, there's not going to be any kind of material recognition to me. 
right? right? And that is kind of important, especially for, you know, people like us who have a very difficult time navigating these spaces, navigating these worlds that are so, you know, that their rules are so based on very uh, white ideas of, you know, of intellectualism, of, uh, of intelligence, of, you know, how you speak. One of the reasons why even like when I speak around here, I find that it, say if I were to talk with an Indian accent around here, I'm going to get called up on it. Yeah. almost immediately almost immediately which is frustrating and now because i i you know i have this accent as well not many questions come up not at least not as many mm-hmm. but if i and that's kind of you know these are like very small things that come up but they really shape my experiences my my discomfort around navigating spaces am i is my english good enough to write an article and I'll take maybe two to three months to write one single thing and at the same, and still feel like I'm not ready to publish it because I don't think anybody is going to like what I have to say or how I've written it or maybe my English is just weird. I mean, and we had this conversation even, so for those who didn't, who maybe don't know this, I should disclose this, this conversation <laughs> actually stemmed from a side conversation that we had had for months. This is a little, many, many months ago. We were thinking about writing an article um, to talk about sort of the ways that new left media had replicated a lot of the same problems that the mainstream media had in terms of gender and representation, people of color, et cetera, um, and how the spaces remained predominantly white and male despite all the posturing and like, you know, commenting about how we wanted to have a more egalitarian left. Um, but I think it's interesting that even we talked about this, you and I were both saying, is there a right time to publish this? Is there a right place to publish this? And I think Mm -hmm. there was a lot of back and forth from, for both of us to kind of think about, well, what does that, what does this space in which we are criticizing the fact that so many left spaces are predominantly white and male, what is a space that would publish that look like? Right. Um, and, and would our conversation even be taken seriously or would it just be, sort of dogpiled <laughs> once we put it out oh. as like, oh, more identity politics drivel. And I think that, you know, it's it's, it's sort of a micro-macro question, but I, there is a lot going on in your commentary here. And I think something that applies to a lot of our experiences where we, we tend to obsess over something, we hold it in because we either don't think it's going to be good enough or we have all these other side issues to worry about, about the space and the receptivity of that, the, the reception yeah. in that space, you know. Yeah, so we have to hold ourselves to the highest of standards, and it it's it's a de- it's so demoralizing because there's there's a very good chance there's a very good chance that we might be able to, you know, like flourish in these spaces in a good way in a way that can you know inspire others and help others and make sure that they their voices are. You know, uh, risen as well, where we can champion the, those voices, where those voices can champion ours, and that seems to that we sent. I, I feel like you know, at least for me personally, I, I feel like I police myself a lot, mm-hmm. a lot, despite how I sound on Twitter. I feel like I actually do police my thoughts a lot, and that and that is very reflective on the fact that you know I struggle with writing. It's it's one of the main things that. But you know, hurts me a lot is because I want to write. I really want to write. I feel like I have thousands of ideas and I can't put them on paper because 
because white supremacy exists and we feel like we can't <laughs> we can't you know live up to that bloody standard so yeah that's pretty much what's happening <laughs> and especially not just in political ideas even if my ideas are not that great I still would like to have that kind of confidence to still put up my work and right. be like okay let's 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 start here I don't have to go fully left-wing as well but I also would like to write and I would like to put something out there and and I would like to, you know, start a ball, you know, like, you know, get the ball rolling. Oh, that would be great, right? Yeah. I think our discussion is one way, perhaps, to get the ball rolling for you. I think, yeah, I think maybe I'd like to see more podcasts with, you know, women of color, not just, yeah, white men. <laughs> <laughs> and like one podcast with a few, oh, you know, women, just women. And I'm just sitting there going, you're all white. <sighs> Right. I don't feel like I can be as unabashed with my thoughts because I have to worry about how you guys feel. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. And that's one of the reasons why I uh, enjoy these kinds of conversations because even if I were to, you know, even if I were to get schooled, I'd, I'd understand why I'm getting schooled a little bit instead of feeling like uh, there, there's some kind of, I, I, I would much prefer a learning process. I mean, what is that wonderful uh, James Baldwin quote? He says, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things that you don't see. Right. And that's one of the things, that's one of the, one of the reasons why I like conversations like this, especially with, you know, other fellow, I mean, with other women of color, is because we can have these conversations, these unabashed conversations. And even if I was wrong or if anybody else was wrong, uh, I, I'd be told so. In, in a way that can help each other grow, like how you teach and how I learn, it's, it's or, or vice versa. I think that's, that's super important. Right. Well, here's to more of more conversations like this. And I hope that, you know, I hope that one day this conversation that we're having is anachronistic somehow, right? Yes. Um, because I think we keep cycling back to the same problem where while we have a lot of people of color, women, et cetera, who are making contributions to the left, they kind of end up getting shut out. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's important for us to end the cycle at some point, um, hopefully within my lifetime, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, with hopefully, hopefully. I'm being optimistic. I'm trying, since we're, since we're leftists and we're supposed to be so angry and sad and sullen, I'm trying to be optimistic here. We don't like fun. No, but I think, <laughs> but I think it's a fun idea to imagine um, a future that's filled with leftist spaces where, most, you know, most all voices, if not all voices are appreciated and not just tokenized, but actually appreciated, understood, incorporated and leading in a way that, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't just have us lead because we're women or because we're people of color, but because of our ideas, which I think are, are valid and strong and are often are used anyway, but just not, we're not always given the credit for it. So hopefully this is a start. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for speaking with me tonight and having this discussion, which again is long overdue, um, but perhaps we can meet again and discuss things a little bit further and maybe put something on paper at some point before we die. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And yes, we definitely will write something. There's no way I'm going to let this go without us writing a piece together or two or 10. Sounds good. Have a good one. Thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> That's it for the fourth installment of the Left Pocket Project podcast. If you would like to learn more about Sangeeta and her work, you can follow her on Twitter at S-A-N-S-D-N. 
And finally, if you'd like to learn more about the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time, you can join us on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash leftpoc. Check out the podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash leftpoc. Interact via Twitter at leftpoc, and show your financial support at patreon.com slash leftpoc. Thanks for listening.